Welcome to Let's Talk Talk, a podcast about language science for people who aren't linguists. Let's learn about why we talk the way we do with Let's Talk Talk. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Let's Talk Talk. We're at it again with Matt Moore for part two of Language and Music. Matt, how are you? Well, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, just sitting here drinking some of Milwaukee's finest. It's mother's milk. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So yeah, it's oh. good. Life's good. Tell us a little bit about what you're, what you're up to since last time. I'm working on my thesis, which is uh, a study of this composer named Eric Satie. He was writing around the cool. late, late 1800s, early 1900s. What, did he, what was his primary focus and why are you studying him? He was kind of the father of the uh, quote-unquote French Impressionists like Claude Debussy, Maurice Ravel. Francois Poulenc. He's kind of considered like the one of the founding members of the French avant-garde movement. He's a pretty neat guy. Cool, dude. What are we going to be talking about today with regard to language and music? I've been doing a lot of jazz here recently, and one thing that's kind of piqued my interest, whenever you're playing with people, there's like a, a dialogue or like a conversation mm. with musicians. Sure. What do you mean by that? Uh, I'll use an anecdote here. I was playing this gig yeah. at the uh, Double Decker Festival, uh, the Mississippians, which is the jazz band I'm in. We played the first show at Double Decker. Now, what's Double Decker? Double Decker is a festival. A bunch of uh, rich people in Oxford go, and buy a lot of really expensive art. And since it's closed <laughs> off, since the, the square is closed off, uh, the square is like the, the market hub for Oxford. Since it's closed yeah, Oxford, off. Mississippi, yeah. Yeah. Um, since it's closed off, it's considered like a private space so people can buy beer and drink outside. So it's a... Oh, wow. It's a great excuse to just go outside and drink when it's hot. Yeah, I didn't mean to jack up your um, your anecdote. Let's let's keep going with that one. I was playing. Uh, it's a, a piece by Lee Morgan called Sidewinder. I'm playing a, a trumpet solo, and the um, the wind starts blowing. For those of you that don't know, if uh, if someone's playing a solo, they're they're looking at chord changes or they're looking at the chords that are being played. And so the wind starts blowing. My music falls off the stand. And so I'm having oh, to, I'm having to improvise, but I don't have any like uh i don't know where we are harmonically i don't I, I you know i don't know which notes to play and so i default right. just the standard blues scale you know um a pen you know the the five note blues scale yeah pentatonic box sure yeah yeah and so it got really weird because our piano player has a really expansive vocabulary and he's like looking over it at me and he's like what and i'm like looking over at him i'm like <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> and so it just, it, there was like a conversation and all of a sudden, like, it's like, I forgot how to talk. And, you know, yeah. it's like, well, no, with, with regard to that particular story, it sounds pretty interesting because this happens a lot in conversation in language as well. And we're using a lot of sort of mapped terminology that we typically would use for language for, to talk about, to talk about music right now, things like dialogue and conversation. Whenever, whenever this happens in language and someone, it does happen. So the wind blowing away, your music would be something like a, a a third party comes in, change the topic of conversation, so you default back to generic, yeah, cool, uh-huh, great, in order to keep the conversation going and not to appear uninvolved. So it's interesting that you bring that up. It's like the more and more I talk about music and language together, the more and more there are just these massive parallels in how they behave. Exactly. 
Yeah, no, so why jazz in particular? Why do you think that happens? Like, what are some components of jazz that make it susceptible to being like language? So one one huge aspect of jazz, and arguably the part that makes it like jazz, the aspect of like improvisation or spontaneously composing uh, music just on the fly. You look at like these early, early jazz groups and they weren't playing with music. Traditionally, you know, we live in a Western society, our music is written down, but these guys were playing, you know, in mass and they didn't have any music they were playing by ear the band leader would like play this lick and then the the rest of the band would go and it would just go back and forth until Mm -hmm. until eventually the whole band was like making up their own parts and adding a bit to this conversation and then eventually that's rad man yeah, one person would just stand up and be like, okay, I'm going to take over this conversation. And then they would start like spontaneously composing music over over what has already been established. And then that's interesting. So yeah. is it like a two, it's a two part question. So we're going to come back to what you just said a second. Okay. So don't let me forget that. Um, so recently, Moonlight obviously came out and it's quite similar to what you're talking about. Like Ryan Gosling's character it sort of tries to like explain to layman's why jazz is good and why you should like it. I'm in a particular scene where he explains it just kind of like you are like these musicians are all fighting and also sort of collaborating at the same time within the same sort of, you know, musical performance. It's chaotic, but not. And I think that's a lot like language in the parallels that we constantly struggle to get the floor in a conversation so people that will hear us and hear our points being made. Does that happen in in jazz too? Is that kind of what you're saying? Definitely. If If you're playing with like someone that's way more experienced or they're kind of like a person of honor, if they start soloing, you know, you you better believe everyone's gonna like back away and they're just gonna let him go until until he stops if he ever stops <laughs> so so prestige plays a role in musical uh turn taking um is that what you're kind of saying yeah and you know more than just prestige but just like sheer um if someone has a very very expensive vocabulary they're and they're clearly more experienced then like that person will obviously be the go-to but i mean also if you're famous like jeff coffin with dave matthews and you're just you're just stepping up and soloing people are gonna right. be like, oh, i'm not gonna step on his feet no and i think that happens in social situations too granted uh any conversation is being had obviously the person that people perceive as the most recognized focused or, or aware of a particular subject at hand, they're going to yield the floor to him. And he won't have to struggle at all to maintain that uh, sort of solo, right? Yeah, so he yeah. won't like it all. So it's interesting that we defer to people that we believe to be better or more aware of a situation and don't sort of put in any complex input, regardless of how much we're able to do because we're afraid to step on toes. That's interesting. Yeah, and I think another thing, um, at least with music, is that a lot of people are afraid to um, to be to, to look stupid. I know, like I was playing with uh, Jeff Coffin. I was playing with Jeff Coffin a couple of years ago, and he was kind of opening the floor for solos, and he kind of started. And I remember everybody just kind of sat there when he finished. Like, oh wait, do we you know do we have to follow that? <laughs> And <laughs> was this whenever no did you, you played with Victor Wooten from Bellafleck too, isn't that right? Is it uh, the same time? It was the same time. Victor Wooten stopped by, um, but it was Roy Wooten who was sitting in Roy, yeah, his brother. Yeah. yeah. Sitting in and was actually physically yeah, playing. Yeah, I got you. Okay, so so that's that's pretty dope, dude. That's a pretty cool set of musicians there. I didn't mean to interrupt, but you go ahead. No, 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 I want to hear some more. So they were like, "Do we have to follow that?" And then like, "Why?" Like, what what made it? What makes it intimidating when someone has prestige like that? Is it is it the fame factor or is it the knowledge factor? 
I think it's both. I mean, one, you're dealing with the fact that you're standing in front of someone that's, you know, been on really famous Dave Matthews albums and has, you know, toured the world, got his degree from North Texas. So he's like one of the elite. So there's that aspect. But then also, like, he legitimately knows what he's throwing down. And you're expected to just, like, mimic what he's doing. I mean, it's like, you know, you're, you're naked in front of everybody, you know? You are you have all these, like, insecurities that come out. And, you know, you start doubting if you really know what you're able to do. And so I tried playing. And, like, that's all that happened for me was, like, should I even do this? Can I try this? Like, is this even worth it? And when all that's going on, I mean, it just it doesn't sound as good. Yeah. No, that's interesting, man. That's actually pretty cool. I wanted to go back for just a second and kind of recap a little bit about what part one was. So the folks at home that don't feel like listening to it right away can kind of get a grasp of what we talked about. We talked a lot more about sort of fundamental music theory in episode one. And I kind of wanted to go back and touch that for a second because I've learned a couple of new things that I want to kind of throw at you. There's a lot of d- debate about uh, what motivates or what causes humans to be able to use language. Um, not as much debate about what causes humans to use music, except for um, what allows us to be able to do it, or, or is it purposeful? And here, let me, let me explain a little bit. So to me, I think it's a viable, a viable idea to say that music is an epiphenomenon um, from human cognition. And I learned this word pretty recently, so yeah. and I've, I've been using it because I think it applies. So essentially, what an epiphenomenon is, I'll give you an example in the in like the medical field. So a good right. example of an epiphenomenon would be like if you took some antibiotics and then got cancer without any um, relation to the direct ca- causative action from the is like without any causative relationship at all from the antibiotics to the cancer but it still happens and looks as though it was causative it's just it's the correlation with no actual causative factors at all um, right. and I think okay. music was able to happen right music was able to be uh, have all these descriptive rules that we give to it like the ones that we and the mathematical stuff the axiomatic things the logic that we apply to music is because we have those components already in general cognition in our brain and a lot of people think that's how language is too but then we also have that ug stuff that we talked about do you think that this is viable for for music that it is an epiphenomenon from cognition during the uh during the 1800s we had this idea of organicism there was this belief that all music, um, of course, this is Western art music, kind of follows this naturalistic. The reason music sounds good is because nature intended for it to sound good. The reason why a major chord sounds so pretty um, and the reason why a minor chord sounds so sad is because nature predetermined that. Music theorists in the 1800s were basically saying that due to the fundamental laws of nature, we have these rules. But then you get into the 20th century and theorists are like, well, that's totally subjective. And Yeah. yeah, It, it seems ex- very absurd to say that because it seems like they weren't looking at any other possible factors influencing perception. Yeah, and then, you know, the whole thing kind of falls apart if you look at music that didn't flourish in Europe. Like, if you listen to Rog from India, they have, like, a division of the octave that's, like, 20 or more notes you know how do you even exp- oh my gosh yeah how do you even explain that you know there's no major chords in in indian music or you know if you're listening to japanese kabuki theater you're not going to hear you know traditional like american musical music but there's still right. music 
Yeah, no, they're music, of course. Um, so because you said that, it's hard for me to conceptualize that. And I think a lot of people would, would say the same thing about language that have sort of different types of performance structure differences than English does. Like English, it doesn't... I did an episode on agglutination the other day, and English is not very agglutinative at all. And it's it's agglutination allows for you to have all these little puzzle pieces, like affixes and suffixes you put together to create a structure. And they think, oh, wow, that's like a different thing. It's a puzzle piece. You'll, you'll hear like people say how perfect Sanskrit and stuff is. And it is right. perfect, but just not for the reasons they're suggesting. It's just a language too. So well, the reason I'm saying that is because that's the way language is built as well. Do you think, is there like a meta music theory to where we just sort of encompass what music is culturally? And is it just cultural? Like if music's in the woods with no one to hear it, is it music <laughs> or anything, you know? I don't know. There's a, there, I mean, there are a lot of attempts. I think in the last the last episode I mentioned uh, Lerdahl and Jackendoff. Still haven't learned if it's yep, actually yep. pronounced Jackendoff or not. In their, in their book on, um, gen, on the generative theory of tonal music, they try to Ex- yeah, they try to expand past tonal music and kind of like delve into like other other styles of music, like Indian music or music from China, etc. And they find that the system does work. We like one overarching component of music that's global is rhythm, and this idea of there being a strong beat and a weak beat. Okay, so that's it. So that would that be a musical universal? I, if you want to call it that, I mean, clearly now, I so mean, it, it, what I was going to say is that composers now um, write drone music. I mean, you have um, Steve Roach, who's like a famous new age music uh, writer in the 80s, just writing drones. And, you know, you really don't hear like a strong so, beak or weak beak, but it's still music. Right. So that that's interesting, too, because that would be, I think, to me, you t- correct me if I'm wrong, would be a direct correlation to doing things like constructed languages, where people try to make it as unnatural as possible in order to make sure that it's still doable. And I'm wondering if that's a good analogy. Yeah, that, yeah I, could, I could definitely get behind that. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Great. So like, so to give you an example, we, when I was talking to David Peterson, we were talking a little bit about Ithquil, which is like this a priori uh, language. It's a philosophical language and has no ambiguity and is pretty much unspeakable, but that's not why it was created. It was created as an artful piece to make sure that these rules could be, could stand up and could, could do the things they're perform they're supposed to do. And it was a language and it can be constructed, but it isn't natural. You can't just like render out Ithquil. So I'm wondering when people do things like, okay, I'm going to, I know that mu- all music has like a hard beat and a, and a soft beat. So I'm going to make it not and see if it's still music. <laughs> yep. And yeah, so we, we, uh, we do have this. There was this big wave that kind of started in, uh, in Germany and kind of swept over the rest of the world called serialism. You know, so whenever you hear like the, the phrase 12 tone, kind of developed by Arnold Schoenberg. For those of you that don't know, 12 tone music is music where you sound each of the 12 notes of the chromatic scale before you can repeat a note. And so it was done to purposely, yeah, it was done purposefully to rid the music of all Western tonal uh, influence. And so there's no such thing as like a traditional cadence. Like you don't hear like a, a satisfying end. You don't hear, you don't hear any harmonic movement. It's just, you hear this manipulation of a 12 tone set through the course of music and the and the musical part of it is how the composer manipulates that set of uh, 12 notes. 
it, it, it's this seems so axiomatic and I, I would imagine and what I mean by axiomatic guys so when I think axiom think like theoretical math it's something like whenever you give something constraints the the system that you gave those constraints must abide by them completely and it is completely logical within those restraints or within those constraints so within the rules that you give it you can do anything you want and if it consistently does it you can say ah it's true within these constraints as far as we know it is true and they do that a lot with constructed languages too and I, I don't know of any natural languages that are axiomatic. They're just descriptive because of how much they change. And I'm wondering if music is a little more like math or language because it has a it has it has components of both, which baffles me. Because when I hear you say like what you just did, it it, it sounds a lot like math. You know, oh, yeah. where, where you where you if if you're not if yeah if you're not satisfied with the way something is described, you change the constraints to see if it will work within those rule sets. And it's interesting. I, it, it's kind of like philosoph- borderline philosophical to me. It makes me in sort of a state of what am I doing here? You know? <laughs> right, right. Well, I, th- I think one thing that you need to know is that um, now we kind of have this division of music where you have academic music. And then you have quote unquote folk music. Yeah, we don't really use it now um, since the lines kind of blurred in academia. But, you know, I guess from a 1940s, 1950s perspective, folk music is uh, music that's like learned by ear. Um, it's passed down through generations and generations. There really isn't any notation. And if there is, it's usually handwritten. I mean, no, that's not true. I mean, there there was pl- plenty of like show tunes that were written down and for mass consumption. You know, George Gershwin, uh, he was writing pop songs on the piano and just distribute them to people to play in their households. But so that's like the folk element. That's like for the uneducated. But then you have academic music. And this is like the continuation of the Western tradition of of written music where you have where you, where things get more theoretical, you're um, not only are yeah. you listening to Beethoven, but you're dissecting every single note in uh, in, a, in in one of his works, and then you're finding out why did he put that there. As right. time moves forward, that's how that's how these more elaborate systems kind of arise. You have people wanting to dare I say over theorize music and start creating their own systems. Yeah. Well, such is the, you know, natural result of being an academic anything, you know. So, but I, what I want to ask you because of the nature of the show, we're all laymen here and we want to talk like I'm 5 years old. Tell me a little bit more about academic music and kind of like give me a a a an example of how you might dissect something and what for what reason. Okay. Like, what are you trying to find? I guess the example I'll give is a piece by uh, Stockhausen, and it's called "Semi-Simple Variations." You know, you guys look—you can look it up on uh, YouTube. It's called "Semi-Simple Variations," and the piece sounds like pure chaos. If you were to listen to that piece without no, with knowing anything going in, it would sound like you know horror movie music. Like it would just sound disjunct and a little bit uncanny. If you look at the music and you dissect what's going on, you see that he is using 12 tone you know the system developed by uh, Schoenberg and he's splitting these 12 the series of 12 notes into two hexachords or two six note groupings he's he's stacking six note groupings on top of each other as you listen to the piece you're hearing every I mean and there's an old joke that me and Seth have but you would you literally hear every note at once 
and you keep. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So you. I mean. You're, so when you listen to the piece, and so if you're if you're if you're paying if you read the score to semi simple variations. Stockhausen tells you the method he's using, and he tells you exactly why this is all there. He serialized every note, every note length, and every rest in the piece. It sounds it sounds absurd, but if you look at it on the music, it you know it's it's a, it's a piece of art. That's okay. That's actually very illustrative. Thank you much. But it, what it, it immediately made me think: at what point do the rules make what we? think is music. So I'll give you kind of, let me, let me give you an example of what I mean. So if I were to burp really loud and like do make like fart noises with my hand, uh, and then slowed that down enough to find out all the notes and compose that (laughs) like a a trumpet, um, you know, ensemble or something at that moment, does it, is it that moment? When is it music? Like, is it the intent or is it is it not like I, it's, it's difficult for me to articulate this, but w- when does something become music whenever it is uh, rendered or whenever it's thought of or when it's performed, whenever it's composed? You know, is it a little of all that? Yeah. You know, uh, there's a quote. I think it's by Luciano Berio, who is a who's a composer. Um, but he says that music is sound listened to with the intent of listening to it artistically. So if you're listening to a sound hmm. with the intent of listening to art then it's music. So do you think, given that, that it is impossible to listen to music without intent? Art- artistic intent, rather? That's hard, too, because there are, you know, if you're in a shopping mall and you hear music, you're not listening to the music. So is that, you know, is it music? <laughs> I spoke about this with some... um on a different podcast called Sleep Talk Podcast. is great. I highly recommend it. Go check it out. I do an episode on there where we just talk about linguistics. And um, But I actually talk a little bit about the difference between like listening, hearing, conversation, and language. And so if you're hearing music, but you're in a shopping mall and you're not actively listening to it, then it's not music, perhaps? Because whenever you use language um, in a situation that socially is unimportant other than to progress socially. Um, So say you're talking about the weather and you don't remember anything you ever said because it was completely irrelevant to you. You use language, but it is not conversation, right? Yeah. Because you're not conversing. It's, it's not, it doesn't register. Well, we, uh, we have, that's, that's a, that's a pretty good parallel there. So, yeah, I was going to say we have a word for that kind of music. um, And it's culturally today called Muzak. M-U-Z-A-K. Really? Yeah, and so yeah, and it's pretty cool stuff. I mean, if you're looking for just like really cheesy, like leave it to Beaver style music, just to have around your house, you can search it on YouTube, and there's like five hour long playlists available. That's uh, wow, man. That's actually pretty. I don't know. My head's my head's kind of elsewhere. Cause <laughs> usually, when I think about like. <laughs> When I think about language, I don't get to go quite as artsy unless I'm talking about a specific type of like world building, langu- like constructing languages and things right, like right. that, which is a lot of fun. And it's a little bit more similar to music than actual natural language, um, because when they try to apply, you know, natural music, it falls apart because it's axiomatic. It's 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 constrained um, via the rules that you give it, not the rules that are defined by tons of other scenarios. You know, it's like it's all individually like even if a culture says, hey, these are the rules then yeah but if it it always changes individual well you know what i might be correcting myself um <laughs> i'll have to think about that some more <laughs> you know it, individual interaction is how you change language, you know so, so, so here, how you change music yeah here's something that's been messing with me so like 
we have um you know there's music that uh, that serves a per like an artistic purpose but there is i don't know if you want to call it music but like i mean there are sounds that happen in our life all the time but we don't consider them music but so okay i guess for example um what, what's been messing with me is like if you're you know let's say you're out hunting and it's like the 1600s or something this giant hog is found you know some guy is going to take a horn and go bum 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 you know you you know that sound is like a a, a post horn or just you know a hunting horn but then mozart comes along and he starts writing music uh, he writes these symphonies with like French horns in them. And then he starts using like hunting calls in his music. So like the hunting call, which served a practical purpose, is now being reappropriated for a musical purpose. Right. And, and a modern representation of that would be something like in that M.I.A. So all I want to do is I mean, it's like. You know, the <laughs> right. shots yeah, the percussive <laughs> cocking and loading. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's an interesting point, man. OK, so Matt, talk to me a little bit about dialogue within like compositions. Okay, so uh, musical ones, obviously. Right, right, not, right. Not uh, not written prose or anything. Well, maybe a little bit of written prose. We'll see. I guess a classic example would be uh, a canon. Frère Jacques, Frère Jacques. Uh, is it Dormez-vous? Uh, my French is kind of gone, but you know that you know uh, a round or a canon where you have one melody being sung, and then that melody continues and then the beginning of it starts again in another voice and so what you have is like the same melody stacking on top of each other with different voices and they kind of interact and so that you know that's a classic cool. example when you say stack can you what, what do you mean by that when they stack together and like what's that mean uh i guess what i mean by stack is like let's say if you're if you're doing a round or a canon for four voices you know you have one voice singing a melody and then while that first voice is still singing the second voice comes in, you know, a moment later, singing the beginning that the first voice is saying, and then those two are singing, and then the third voice comes in. And so by the end, you have four voices. So you, no, so like, do you think that this kind of structure, because technically it's like they overlap each other, but it's structural. So I'm trying to come up with a, a, a social or any type of time or situation to where we do that with language where it's where it's purposeful that we overlap and a good one that i can think of is whenever you do like confirmation tags whenever you say like yeah 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 that's right yeah 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 <laughs> as someone's talking right or like i guess um you know whenever it's like if you're watching um like some uh this is a very specific example but like uh if you're watching like a detective movie and then like the second everyone knows who like the bad guy is everyone says the name yeah <laughs> well exactly and you're talking over what you're uh, what you're viewing and what's being talked and so the reason people is linguistically the reason people will do that it goes kind of circles back to that turn taking and grabbing the floor what you're often trying to do is by agreeing with and saying yeah 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 that's right you're trying to get them to shut up and let you contribute on how you agree and so you can take the floor from them um but in a musical round i don't know if it's necessarily the same yeah. motivations but no. it's, it's the same type of stacking you know what i mean it, it's a moment to where you do structurally overlap and it's okay I can, uh, yeah, yeah. But that now, so regarding that, I mean, a perfect example, um, if we can go back to jazz, would be um, there's a piece by Charles Mingus called Monin. The bulk of the piece is made up of just spontaneous improvisation where multiple people in the ensemble are improvising at the same time. And so when you're listening, so when you're listening to it, it sounds as everyone is trying to like get their word in, but then eventually in the recording, this tenor sax, uh, no, Barry sax, sorry, 
this Barry Sachs just like rises above all of them and just takes the floor with like machismo gusto. Like it's almost obnoxious, but it's it sounds good. And so, I mean, within this this jazz framework, you have multiple people just playing and playing and it sounds like utter chaos. And there's like a tin whistle somewhere in there. You don't know. And then all of a sudden, this Barry Sachs just comes up and says, okay, guys, get out of the way. I have something to say. <laughs> no, well, I mean, we really appreciate everybody listening to the Examples podcast. Lord, <laughs> it's, been, it's just been constantly just giving examples, which I love. I, I learn off exemplary data. You know what I mean? I think it's a great way, language, or, or it's a great learning tool. So I'm glad we were both able to sort of do that on a fundamental way. Yeah, yeah. I certainly learned some things. What I want to ask is, what is something true to you about music? For me, I think the most um, important thing that I think people should know about music is that music inherently has a message. Whether that message is, uh, hey, get up on the floor and start dancing, or you know, what, whether it's, you know, sit down and let's struggle with the writings of Nietzsche, like if you're a Mahler or something, or you know, maybe it's just you've had a hard day and you need to listen to some lo-fi hip hop. You know, all, music has a message. Too right. too often in the in the music world, I see the insult flying around that you know, blank isn't music. Or, oh, that's not music, which I think is just uh, inaccurate. I think, sure, you might not like something, but you can't you can't disregard the fact that like it has a message or it has a purpose and that there are people out there that are like soaking in that message. Matt, is there anything you wanted to let us know before we wind up the show? If you guys need some music, uh, I'm more than willing to, to do some stuff and I'll do it for free. I mean, I don't really care. I love doing this stuff. Awesome, man. Now, actually, for the listeners at home, Matt actually uh, composes every piece of music you hear on this podcast, and he's excellent at it. What I'll do is I'll uh, link his email address in the show notes, and you can go check it out and talk to him about what your podcast sort of music needs are. That's cool, man. Thanks. Awesome. So guys, if you enjoyed listening to the show and you enjoyed listening to Matt talk to me about music and me talking to Matt about language and us talking to you about both, go check out our Facebook. It's on facebook.com slash Let's Talk Talk Podcast. And check out our Twitter too, which is at twitter.com slash Let's Talk Talk Pod. Leave a like on Facebook. Give us a good rating on iTunes. If you like us, if not, please don't rate at all. <laughs> but until the next episode, guys, we'll see you.